Father. That song about resting in the joy of our Savior Jesus Christ. Cuts me to the core because I often do not rest in that truth and that joy. So I pray as we gather together around your word, Father, that you would reveal areas where self-rule has come in to our hearts, areas where we are discounting or demeaning your love as revealed in Jesus Christ, that you would expose roots of sin that may be deep in our hearts and begin to expose those in your glorious light. I pray that the familiarity of this text today would not cause any of us to tune out or think that we know this already, but that we would be in awe again at the glory of the gospel. That we would be in awe again, or maybe even perhaps for the first time for some in here, at the beauty of Jesus Christ. Pray that we would not approach your word with any lackadaisical or casual attitude. But that we would rest in the joy of Jesus Christ and know Him more fully today through Your revealed Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here we are in John chapter 3. I think most of you thought you were finished with me last week, and no, you're not that fortunate. It's good to be able to finish the message I started last week. So the intent was for me to preach through verse 21, and I made it through verse 15. So we're going to actually complete that message. God was good in giving me additional time to study this week, and even expand on what I had planned on presenting last week. So thanks and praise to him for bringing us together today, for the freedom to open his revealed word and proclaim it. He is so good to us. I just want to mention one thing. I've had these in my bag almost every week since we started the book of John. You ask what this is. It's a small copy of the Gospel of John in ESV There's a stack of them over there on the the book table. I think I may have some more at home. I bought a large bundle at one point. And in general, I love, you know, having a complete copy of God's Word. But while we're studying, John, I think these are nice. If you want them to read in, even to write in as you're reading along at home, um, maybe jot some notes in it, just a small paperback version of it. So feel free to grab one, no charge. Um, And I pray that it's a blessing to you as we study this this book together. So we're turning again to John chapter 3. We have the privilege today to unpack what is probably the most recognized and the most memorized scripture in the entire canon. When a text reaches this level of popular knowledge, I think even... Even the unregenerate could come to it and say, yes, I've heard that before. But we that are Christians also may have that same sense. Like, I've heard this before. Maybe you've heard messages on it. Maybe you've just known it since you were a a child, if you grew up in church. And we can even presume certain beliefs or understandings on the text. And I want to caution us gently not to do that today. Not to approach this as if we've heard it all before And let's finish this so we can get on to the rest of our activities today. But instead, I'm going to encourage us to open and read with fresh eyes, if God would would be so gracious to us, to help us to see his, his word 
afresh and to hear what he is saying. That's been my challenge in studying this text this week. So may God speak clearly and powerfully through his life-giving word today. I'll start reading, actually, on John 3 in the first verse, just to recover the ground that we, we went over last week to give a little bit of context. And then we'll start in verse 16 in today's text. This is the word of the living God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal Life And now today's text, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. God loves you. God loves you. You, if you hear that statement, does that seem stunning to you? God loves you. As a culture, we have some expectation that God loves us. That's the kind of God he is. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, depending on what we do with it. For example, Scripture itself teaches us this truth about God. Even in the psalm we read earlier in our worship, we saw his steadfast love reaches all the way to the heavens. And we can rest and rely on that truth about God. But as a society, I think it's fair to say we've come to expect this of God. Like God deserves to love us, or we deserve to receive this love from God. 
And then there's from that a false view of God that can even be found in the church that treats God as some doting grandfather-like figure that just looks past our sin, looks past our failings, and treats us with a general benign love. But is that really love? Is that love to overlook our sin and just generally treat us kindly? In other words, God is often not viewed as a holy creator and judge of all mankind, but instead as a heavenly vending machine that we go to when we need something. And sadly, as a result, the truth of God's love just doesn't really shock us anymore. But I think with a full understanding of Scripture and of how God has revealed himself, coming to John 3.16 and reading, For God so loved the world, it should shock us. It should floor us that this holy, righteous God is lovingly disposed toward his creation. You might think that just because you've been churched and you've heard John 3.16 from growing up and you've sung, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But to those of us who come to really understand God's love and his posture towards sin and what sin ultimately costs God, the truth of his love leaves us amazed. And that's my prayer for each of us today, that as we come face to face with the truth of God's love as revealed in John 3, that we would be stunned by it, that it would provoke in our hearts worship. Because here we are coming out of last week's text in the narrative between John or between Jesus and Nicodemus. And most scholars believe that actually the conversation between John and Nicodemus, or Jesus and Nicodemus, sorry, ends at verse 15. And that starting in 16, even though I think even my copy of the Bible has quotation marks starting verse 16, I believe, and most scholars, many scholars think that this is actually John's commentary, that when he was writing as narrator, he's filling in some additional details under inspiration of the Spirit, giving us more information about this Son of Man that was to be lifted up that all who believe would have eternal life. So I'm not going to be able to fully mine all the depths of this passage today. I'm going to point us, though, to what I believe are some key treasures that God wants us to see and unpack a little bit. So starting in verse 16, we're going to draw out today five main truths from this text for our church today. And if God enables us to truly understand them, they are each stunning. Number one, the object of God's love is the world that stands in rebellion. The object of God's love is the world that stands in rebellion. He could have said, for God so loved his people that he gave his only son. For God so loved the elect that he gave his only son. Instead, John under inspiration, chose that word, the world. And for John, that is not a positive word. That's not even a neutral, you know, amoral word. This is a category in John's teaching and the rest of John's writing, a universal category that describes the systems, the organizations, and the activities of mankind at enmity with God. Let me give you some examples so you just don't take that at face value. John 1, verses 9 and 10. The world is the place of darkness that Jesus comes into. He is the true light which gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Every time he uses that word, the world, he's speaking of the place 
Christ comes into that does not know God. Later in that same chapter, what does John the Baptist say? He presumes in his statement the sinful state of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Later in this Gospel of John, we'll see in John 16 that the world is that which receives the conviction and reproof for sin and what Christ had come to overcome. Jesus answered in John 16, starting in verse 31. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Remember the world in John's Economy in his writing is that organized system in enmity with God, standing in rebellion against God. We see this even more in John's epistles. I'll just point to one passage. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. The world is what Jesus' followers are told not to love. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a pretty strong statement. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now we know what John isn't telling us there. He's not telling us don't love people because they're part of the world. But rather, do not love the sin and the self-motivated systems that people build in their rebellion against God. So here in our text today, that same Greek word, cosmon, basically means an ordered system, like cosmos. But for John, the world is what stands in rebellion to God. So when he says God loves this world, this rebellious and self-seeking organism, it's a profound truth that we would do well to think about and dwell on. And maybe that bothers you. Maybe that bothers you that God would love that world, the world that is unlovely as rebellious mankind. Maybe you want God to only love what is already pure and good and right and cleaned up and polished. But fundamentally, we were that world before God came in and invaded our lives and gave us new births that Jesus had just told Nicodemus about. We do not clean ourselves up before God loves us, but he loves the world. Fundamentally, that world was created to bring glory to God and rebelled. So it was no longer fulfilling its created purpose. So God acts in love to redeem people out of that world. Now, one other point I think about God's love for the world is important to bring up. And that is to dispel any notion that we might have that this love is like our human love. Our view of love is often shaped by the kinds of love we experience as humans. Now, we can certainly love things redemptively as God does that work in us. But for the most part, I think it's fair to say our love is directed toward things that are lovable, that have some attractiveness to us. In fact, those of you who are married probably did not go up to your spouse or your spouse-to-be and say, you are so unattractive, there is nothing lovable about you, but yet I am choosing to love you in spite of how much my stomach turns every time I look at you in revulsion. Of course not. We love our spouses not only because, but partly because we find them attractive and beautiful and there is loveliness in them that our heart is drawn to. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. 
We love often things that merit our love. But God's love isn't this way. He loves the unlovely. He loves the sinful, the broken. And he doesn't love it so he can leave it that way. He loves us to bring us back to himself and to fulfill so in us he can fulfill his created purposes. Scripture draws this out in other places. For example, in Romans 5, Paul says, starting in verse 6, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. So that's kind of, he's setting the baseline. Most people aren't even going to die for a good person. Though perhaps, he says, for a good person, one would dare even to die. So a small percentage of people might. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there is an amazement that should come when we look at the world that God loves. But God so loved the world. But the second point, the second truth I'd like to draw out from this text and us to ruminate on and think about is the full measure of God's love is Jesus himself. The full measure of God's love is Jesus himself. And again, that may initially on face value sound like a cliche, sound like a Christian saying, but I pray that it goes beyond the surface level in our understanding. I pray that we can get past that basic understanding that God loved us in Jesus to really understand that that is the God of the universe that was in community, God, Father, and Spirit. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in community for all eternity past. The kind of love that would break that community so that Jesus could become incarnate, to take on flesh, And then even more than that, the love that would break that community so Jesus would become a curse that the Father would pour out his wrath on. This is maybe just cracking the door open a little bit to what we mean when we say the full measure of God's love is Jesus himself. We can go to the Old Testament or other parts of Scripture. I'll read from Isaiah in just a minute. But for starters, let's consider the self-giving of God's own son to redeem sinful man. This is the measure of God's love, that he loved the world. A lot of translations say, for God so loved the world. The adverb there perhaps could be better read, for God loved the world in this way. This is how God loved the world that he gave his only son. He sent the deliverer, sent him in the incarnation to become man and in the crucifixion to become our sin. This is, this is one of the core central truths of the gospel, that God loved the world that he gave, that he planned an eternity past to deliver man from his sin through the sacrifice of his only son. And you see this coming up throughout redemptive history. I'll point out a few places. It was prophesied in Genesis 3 when God spoke of the seed of the woman that would bruise the serpent's head. He was speaking of Christ, that he would give his son in love. It was later foretold in Genesis to Abraham that he would have a descendant And the promise was that all peoples of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's descendant, speaking of Jesus Christ. And throughout the Psalms and the prophets, they were waiting for this one from God who would save fallen man. Isaiah 
chapter 53 brings it into a little bit more clear focus. Just listen as I read. This is of Christ. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We are that world in rebellion against God. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Paul spoke of this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I think Paul got it, that the full measure of God's love is Jesus himself. Now I'll mention in passing that he gave his only son. If you have another translation, a faithful translation sometimes will say gave his only begotten son. It's actually the way I memorized it as a child. He gave his only begotten son. And that word begotten has actually caused quite a bit of a stir in the church for centuries. In fact, in the fourth century, was the first big controversy about what it means for the Son to have been begotten. And while I don't think that's a, a major direction our church has been hearing or moving, but it might be something you hear from a cult or from a false teaching that says that Jesus is somehow less God because he was begotten. And we think of you know, a father in human terms begets a son, so there's some um, authority there or some um, different value, perhaps. The only begotten son, out of this reading, Arius of Alexandria, actually in the fourth century taught that Jesus was less than God, the Father, having been created or begotten of God. This is also what the Jehovah's Witness, if you happen to speak to someone who, who follows that belief, they would say that Jesus is created of God, is, is begotten. But we've seen already in John chapter 1 that Jesus existed with the Father as the Word from the very beginning. He himself is uncreated. And in fact, at the Council of Nicaea where they met to, to condemn this false diminishment of God the Son, they said he is begotten but not made. And the Nicene Creed actually clarifies that statement. He is begotten, which means he is, he is the Son, the eternal Son of the Father, but he was not made, he was not created. He has always existed as an eternal part of the Godhead. And that even makes the, the beauty of the giving of Jesus in love for our sin even more powerful and magnificent. The third point, as we're moving along, the saving purpose of God's love is that we have life. The saving purpose of God's love is that we have life. You see at the end of verse 16 that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The kind of parallel thought at the end of 17 that the world might be saved through him. And in 18, it speaks to our not being condemned. So we have this parallel thinking, not condemned, saved, eternal life. John is starting to draw some contrast between the one who perishes 
and the one who has eternal life. The one who is condemned versus the one who is saved. And he says in verse 17 that the purpose, the purpose of Jesus' coming was not to condemn the world. In fact, he says the world is already condemned. Whoever does not believe in verse 18 is condemned already because he has not believed in the name. So the purpose of Jesus coming into the world of the Father, sending him as the missionary to accomplish his purposes, sending him as the redeemer to save a sinful people was that we would have life. And the promise of eternal life is not a new concept. It's not a new concept in Scripture. It was part of the Old Testament witness of what was coming through the work of God's Messiah. We read through the prophets that God was going to come in judgment and usher in a new life to come for his people. That includes this life, includes the fellowship of knowing and relating to God rightly for eternity. Daniel 12 contains one example of this promise of life when he speaks of the resurrection of the dead. If you're taking notes, jot down this reference, Daniel 12, verses 2 and 3. And I'll read that. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So this isn't a new concept that God was going to bring eternal life for his people. In fact, the phrase that John and other New Testament authors use to speak of everlasting life, of eternal life, is probably taken from that text in Daniel that I just read. But there are some key differences I think it would be good for us to understand between the Old Testament understanding of eternal life and Jesus' teachings. Eternal life in the Old Testament was believed to begin at the day of the Lord, the time when God would come in judgment to rescue his people, to judge those who still remained in their sin. So it was going to start then, and often it was taught that this was found through keeping the Torah, the law. And actually the religious establishment of Jesus' day would have still believed this. But Jesus brought with him the truths of life that doesn't start at some future time, but life that begins here and now and that's accessed not through works, not through what we can put on or pull up our bootstraps, but through faith in someone else's perfect work. And that faith brings us to point number four, the only means of enjoying God's love to life is faith. The only way that God's love can be enjoyed such that we have that life that he intended and purposed savingly is faith. The word believe is used several times in our text. Let's look for it. Verse 16. Whoever believes in him should not perish. And then in verse 18, it appears three times. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. And then it uses it some in the negative. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this truth of faith, this truth of belief in something outside of ourselves, actually should draw our minds back to what we read and studied last week in verse 14 and 15 of John 3. It's very much like the serpent that Moses was told to put up on a pole from the book of Numbers. And if you don't remember from last week or if you weren't here, here's a brief refresher. The people of Israel had been complaining during their time in the wilderness after rescue from Egypt. They were starting to despise God's rescue, even wished that they were back in slavery where they had 
perhaps a more consistent diet. They knew what to expect. They were safe and comfortable, or that's what they thought. But as a result, God sent in punishment and in judgment deadly snakes into the camp. And if you were bit by this snake, you would die. There was no antidote. There was no treatment. So the people cry out in despair. Moses goes to God on their behalf and is given a simple a very strange sounding solution. He says, take some bronze, make a snake out of it, put it up on a pole. And when you're bit, look to that pole and you'll be healed. Now if that doesn't strike you as strange, maybe you're not thinking about it. You're, the remedy for a snake bite is usually, I mean, I think you can suck the venom out, right? You, you find it and you, or squeeze it or maybe cut some shape in it. I don't remember. Something in wilderness training that you do. And no, n- none of that. None of that does God tell them to do. He says, look at that snake on a pole. Look at outside of yourself to the means provided by God. You'll be healed. When anyone was bit by that snake, all they needed to do was look at the bronze serpent and they would survive. The look of faith to the provided means was enough to save them. So Jesus tells Nicodemus in verse 15, just as Moses lifted up that snake, which looking to in faith was enough to save from sudden death, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So this may raise the question, what do I believe in? What is the the substance of the belief that we are to have in order to receive the life that God means us to have? Well, he says here, whoever believes in him. I don't take that to mean just believe that he existed because he was presenting himself to be not just a teacher, not just a good man. He was presenting himself to be the son of God who came to save sinners. So belief in who he really presented himself to be and then in his saving work. Because in the same way, looking at that serpent, when they looked at it, they had to have some belief that this was going to do something. It's not like, oh, just going to look at the serpent. Don't really want to, but... No, they, they recognized that looking to that serpent would do something because they were trusting in something about that serpent and what it, what it represented about their need for salvation. So there's a deep truth in this text that we should not miss. And it's easy to be in church your whole life. Thinking of some of the kids here, it's easy to grow up in church And perhaps get some false conclusion that by doing good things, by living a good life, by staying out of trouble, that you'll receive this life. That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture doesn't teach that there's anything we can do or put on to be saved. It teaches salvation through faith. So it was one of the cries of the Reformation. Sola fidelis. Well, yeah, I think that's right. Faith alone. Don't have to have some religious system that you put on on top of that. Faith alone in the work of Christ finished for sinners. And perhaps you're someone like I am, that believes in the doctrines of grace, that believes that ultimately we are powerless to save ourselves. We are powerless to do anything to make ourselves Christian, to awaken our dead, stony hearts and make them hearts of flesh. 
that this is the work of God, that new birth is a work that God has to do. And I believe that wholeheartedly. But then sometimes we may read a text like this, which seems very universal, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And I say to you, brothers and sisters, we should embrace that truth wholeheartedly too. We shouldn't look at a verse like that that says whoever believes and say, that seems a little too universalist because that's saying that, you know, whosoever will could come to Jesus and maybe they're not elect. Well, I think we need to take Scripture at face value. And when it says whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, that's what it's saying. The one who comes to God in faith of the work and person of Jesus Christ will not perish but have eternal life. And maybe you have friends or family members that would take this verse and throw it in your face. I know I've experienced a little bit of that. And would say, Scripture says whosoever will may come. So what does that do with you know, sovereign election? What does that, what is that you know, doesn't that tear down your whole belief system? I think we should say no, no. Scripture is very clear that whoever believes will be saved. And we make that universal call that if you believe in Christ, you will be saved. And ultimately, we rest and trust in the work of God to actually bring new life and make that faith possible. That's our prayer for our kids. That's really our only prayer for our kids. That's our prayer when we go out and and speak with a coworker, a neighbor, or a friend about Jesus Christ. It's not that we can convince them through our words that this faith is better than other faiths out there. There's a place for apologetics, but ultimately what they need is a new heart. And God is the one that's going to give them that new heart. And when they have that new heart, they will believe and they'll have faith in the work of Christ. One other point I want to make before going to my fifth point, because I think it's worth being reminded that this is why John wrote his gospel. It's up on our slide, kind of the tagline that we chose for this series. But the gospel of John, he says, was written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's from John chapter 20, verse 31. And in saying that, John says, you know, Jesus did lots of other things. I didn't write down everything he did. I didn't write down everything he said. But the things that I did put into this book are that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so if you're in the hearing of this message and you have not yet believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, a prayer would be that you would believe, that you would run to Jesus, and that believing you would experience the life he provides. And here we are at our fifth and final truth that should stun us. The proper response to God's love is coming to the light. This could be a complete message in and of itself. It covers the final three verses of our text. And John here starts to use some courtroom language. This is the judgment, he says. This is the verdict, is basically what he's claiming. The light has come into the world, and men, people, loved the darkness rather than the light. Now that all the evidence is in about God's love, his saving purposes for man, and what he has done to redeem a people, the summary is that Jesus the light has come. But even with him coming into the world, people still loved their darkness. The entrance of God into the universe to save did not change our attraction to sin and repulsion to what it exposes because a heart change was still needed. 
We're again back to what Jesus had been saying to Nicodemus. That's why I believe John has this commentary on the conversation that happened between Jesus and Nicodemus. Is he saying fundamentally, you need to be born again. You're not just going to naturally come to the light. You don't need just a second chance or better opportunities to make the right choices. Because given the choice of good and evil, the unredeemed heart is always going to choose that which pleases and glorifies self. So what does it look like to come to the light? That phraseology might seem a little foreign. Fundamentally, it means to come out of hiding. It means to no longer try to conceal or to run from the reality of our sinful acts and our sinful hearts. It means in faith and repentance, opening ourselves up to the scrutiny of the Spirit's conviction that happens through the Word. A few texts that can help draw out what this looks like for the believer. I'll read one from John's writings and one from Paul. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-10. through 10. It's a beautiful text. I know the women have been studying it in their Bible study from 1 John. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. John loves this light and darkness imagery. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's a few truths about the light that come out of that, those couple of verses. One is that coming to the light actually changes our relationship with each other. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Actually, before that, it changes our relationship with God because we're walking with him in his light. And it also means it changes our posture towards sin. Sin is not something we try to hide or pretend that we don't have. But even as Christians, coming to the light means being willing to admit when we have sinned. Being willing to openly come to a brother or sister that we've sinned against and ask their forgiveness. It means not being afraid to talk about sin Because with the truth of the gospel, we really have nothing to be scared of in talking of our sin. Jesus has done the work to, to wash it away. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That might mean we have to come to the light, and then a week later, we find ourselves hiding again. We come to the light again. But according to John's commentary here. It's ultimately about our posture. The wicked hate the light because it will expose their sinful works. It will expose who they really are to the core so they despise the light. They want to stay in the shadows. But whoever does what is true, John 3.21, comes to the light. And they don't come, so look at me, I'm doing everything right. No, they come that they may clearly see that his deeds have been carried out in God. Ultimately, they come to the light so God can be glorified. So his works and his actions in us can be seen. This reminds me of, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works And give you lots of credit for it. No. They may see your good works and glorify your God who is in heaven. And ultimately coming to the light means laying ourselves open to the scrutiny of God's word. Hebrews 4 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, 
imagery of being brought to the light even. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God ultimately knows our hearts anyway. But coming into the light through community, through other believers, through the word of God, exposing the darkness, the remaining sin that still exists, we are able to experience the fellowship with the Father. And ultimately, this is the response of those who have experienced God's love. They come to the light. As I conclude, let's review these stunning truths that we've looked at today. My prayer is that God would bring our hearts to worship as we reflect on the glories of his love in the person of Jesus Christ. The object of God's love is the world that stands in rebellion. The full measure of God's love is Jesus himself. The saving purpose of God's love is that we have life. The only means of enjoying God's love is faith. And the proper response to God's love is coming to the light. Will you pray with me? Father, reveal these truths to our hearts. Open our eyes where we have perhaps forgotten the glory of the gospel where we have perhaps neglected over time the wonder of your love for the world that you would give your Son. The wonder of a salvation that's not earned or merited through something we can try to do on our own but has been already merited through the work of Christ and is ours through faith. And that then is revealed by a posture of coming into the light. Father, show us more of these truths today, even as we leave this place and go to our community groups this week and spend time meditating on the truth of your word. I pray that the gospel would become all the more glorious to our hearts. First in your son's name we pray.